welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. I never tire of meeting and having conversations with female directors, producers, and writers. Rachel Dretson, my guest today, wears all three hats and also happens to be, along with her husband, a co-founder of ARC Media a Brooklyn-based documentary production company. Rachel has been producing and directing documentaries since 1994, many of which have aired on PBS. They include the six-parter Many Rivers to Cross, a history of African Americans hosted by Professor Henry Louis Gates, Jr., and Still I Rise, a four-hour series focusing on the last 50 years of black history. She was also the senior producer on the first season of Finding Your Roots. For Frontline, Rachel has produced and directed Football High, Digital Nation, Growing Up Online, Failure to Protect, The Persuaders, Merchants of Cool, The Lost Children of Rockdale County, and Hillary's Class. Rachel's films have received an Emmy Peabody DuPont Columbia Award, the Robert F. Kennedy Grand Prize for Journalism, as well as the NAACP Image Award. Her recent documentary, Far From the Tree, is based on the New York Times bestseller by Andrew Solomon. The film follows families coping with the challenges of raising children who may have Down syndrome, dwarfism, autism, deafness, mental illness, or who are child prodigies. The problem with women like Rachel is that their introductions can last for days. So enough, Rachel. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Sandy. I'm happy to be here. What made you want to be a filmmaker and what made you think you could be? I was 16 when I decided I wanted to make documentaries, which is very unusual for, for anybody to know what they want to do. But I actually worked during the summer for a woman as an intern, a woman named Helen Whitney, who's still making films. During the summer, I think it was between my junior and senior year of high school, and Helen was making a film for ABC about the McCarthy era. And I was a passionate lover of history at the time. And I couldn't believe how much fun it was to go and actually meet people who lived through that period and talk to them. Mm -hmm. It was like history on steroids. It yes. was like so exciting. And, and in your face. In your face and to be able to ask anything you wanted. And I, I just knew immediately that this was what I wanted to do. I actually never wavered. To have that strong a passion at 16. Well, you know, I come from a family. My mother's an actor. My sister's uh, an actor. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of that. And I, I thought that's what I wanted to do because when you have a parent who's a performer, you generally speaking want to do that too. Um, and actually, I think I was more academically inclined and, and always got very excited about what I was learning in school. And I think this, in some ways, combined my love for performing, for acting, mm -hmm. um, sort of em embodying other people and, and getting inside the heads of other people, which sure. is really what I loved, with my interest in politics and history and social justice and all that other because stuff. Because what's interesting to me as I'm listening to you talk, I probably didn't know from documentaries at 16. They were probably not as ubiquitous. They definitely then. weren't as ubiquitous. And it wasn't exactly like a common career, popular career choice yeah, for really. people. But I sort of stumbled into it um, and it just fit me. You know, it always has. I think it always will. And I still think it's the greatest career on earth. I Isn't mean, that fabulous? I can't believe everybody doesn't want to make documentaries. <laughs> so where did that lead you collegiately? Well, I went to Yale. I studied history. I did not major in film or anything like that. Mm -hmm. It didn't occur to me to do that. I was really interested in documentary film, but I, I just didn't think about like going to film school or anything like mm -hmm. that. I mean, I was really interested in going to college mm -hmm. and having a sort of more traditional college experience. And at Yale, I had a professor actually who taught film documentaries, a really extraordinary man named Michael Romer. 
And I took a bunch of classes with him. As a matter of fact, he only taught a few production classes, and I just kept taking them over and over. <laughs> I think I took oh, the look same class. class. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I literally think I took the same class two or three times. But, um, you know, we watched all the great docs, and then we made documentaries in his class. Mine was, <laughs> I had this very sort of purist, classic college student attitude about documentaries, which is that you don't want to intervene in any way in your subjects. And so I, I wasn't going to edit. Yeah. I was just going <laughs> to... <just, laughs> but anyway. the irony about that is the minute you put your eyebrows behind a camera, you are editing, exactly. you know. So. It's so subjective. Right. It's all your point of view. And that's sort of my whole career has been the process of really coming to terms with that. But at any rate, so I studied history and I studied a little bit of documentary. And then actually, I um, this was, again, just sort of this fortuitous sequence of events. I One of the summers in college, I, I worked, I guess, as an intern or a production assistant at WNET in New York. The local PBS station. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. And, and they offered me a job out of college, which was really great. So I graduated. I remember I was making $350 a week, which seemed like the most incredible amount of money. Yeah, really. And I felt really cool because I had a job before I'd even graduated college. So I started sort of, it wasn't really documentaries. I was working on, well, I guess I was, the first job was on a documentary. And then I worked on a a local nightly show called The 11th Hour with Mm -hmm. Robert Lipsight, which was a half hour sort of public affairs, Charlie Rose style show. Uh But there was tape. There were these little short five to seven minute taped pieces in there. And I was hired as a production assistant, but because we were so short staffed and under budgeted, I ended up producing. Wow. And so, you know, at the age of whatever, 23. So you're cutting your teeth and you're getting paid for it. Exactly. And I was, I I remember the first day that I had to go out on a shoot. I had never been on a shoot. I didn't know what I was doing. And there I was with a cameraman. I did not sleep one wink the night before. I had no clue. But I learned on my feet. I was thrown into edits. I really was sort of given the opportunity, you know, to to actually do it as opposed to just watching other people do it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was lucky. My knees would have been knocking and, you know, I'm thinking, oh, they're going to find me out and this is going to be a nightmare. But, you know, you you believed in you. You do it. And, you know, I had sort of no choice. I I definitely didn't sleep much that year. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I knew was I loved it. I mean, I just loved it. Every single story I did was like a feast, you know. Mm-hmm. It was just a chance to dive into another world. I still love that each film is a different world. I'm entering completely, immersing myself in a right. new world. But it's also the power of documentaries that I don't know how many people really understand that. What an educational tool. Docs are everywhere now. It is our moment. And I think the world has really woken up to how powerful real stories are when they're told well. I'm thrilled that finally there's there's a lot. So take us on your professional trajectory. You're cutting your teeth, you know, on the 11th hour. Right. And then what happened? Well, so what happened was the most exciting story that I worked on at the 11th hour was the story of a young woman. I think she must have been in her early 20s, named Kelly Michaels. She was a preschool teacher in New Jersey, and she had been accused of sexually abusing a bunch of preschool students, and she was in jail. And there was a whole, there was a big Wall Street Journal piece by Dorothy Rabinowitz about the case that made it clear that there were some real questions around her guilt. Mm -hmm. And this was a period, I don't know if you remember, but... During the this was in the mid eighties, late eighties, there was just a slew of these cases of children, very young children, 
quote unquote accusing teachers and and caretakers of sexual abuse. Yeah, I was in the news business in the radio news business, and yes, that is you know jogging my memory. Yeah, yeah. and and a lot of these allegations were false, not because the children were lying, but because adults were steering them in ways that were really yeah you know not okay. Them. Mm-hmm. And so I had gotten very involved in this story when I got a call actually. Helen Whitney, this very same, mm-hmm. had recommended me to a producer at Frontline, a director named Ofer Bekel, a very, very accomplished Israeli director who was looking for help on her Frontline. And she was looking for, I guess, an associate producer. And I met with her. And she wasn't sure what her – she was one of, the, one of the wonderful things about Frontline is they have a sort of stable of people who just do films for them regularly. And she, she was looking for her next subject. She had this vague idea she wanted to do something about Germany. But, but she started asking me what I was working on, and I told her about this story, about this young woman who'd been accused. And she got really interested. And she said, well, what if we pursue a documentary on that, mm. on these cases? Mm-hmm. And I just jumped at it because I was so outraged at what had happened to this woman. I'd gone to visit her in jail. And so Offer and I began to work on a front line together about false allegations of child sexual abuse in daycare centers. Mm-hmm. And before long, we stumbled onto the biggest case, a case that ended up consuming about five years of our lives wow. and becoming three separate sort of epic frontline documentaries, which freed Several people from wow. It was they. They still actually are often. A lot of people remember them. They're called Innocence Lost. Um, it was. It was as I said. It was a trilogy uh-huh. um, of films, and there were um, seven people accused in a very small town in, of North, in North Carolina of child sexual abuse, jailed, and actually three of them were convicted and given life sentences. And we sort of deconstructed what had happened. Wow. I spent a tremendous amount of time in North Carolina. Had access to both the parents of the children, the prosecution the defense and the defendants. And um, it changed my life. I mean, this case was so extraordinary. And to stumble into something like this and see this kind of injustice and be able to do something about it was just mind-blowing. Powerful, yeah. So that started me out on what became a couple of decades of directing films for Frontline, which I was very lucky because Frontline is a place where, you know, they're commissioned films. You don't actually have to raise money for the most yes. part. And I developed over time a relationship with them where I was directing. Ofra kind of mentored me. She believed that I could do it, and she sort of vouched for me and Eventually, I started directing my own films for Frontline, and that, and I did that for many, many years, actually. And that's how I really learned how to make films. When you said you directed your own films, did you present the idea of the subject to Frontline? You know, once uh, they knew I could direct mm-hmm. and um, that I wasn't going anywhere, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, I would finish a film, mm-hmm. and we would have a conversation about the next one, about what some of the subjects were they were interested in, what I was interested in. At the time, there would be sometimes development periods where I would be researching a few ideas and then come back to them and say, you know, this is really interesting. There was definitely a carte blanche. Well, I wouldn't say it was a carte blanche, but I certainly would say that as a documentary filmmaker, it was an incredibly privileged position to be in Mm -hmm. because, you know, I had to prove to them that I had a story and it had to be a story they were really interested in. Mm -hmm. And there are certain constrictions when you're directing for Frontline. I mean, you have a certain time limit on your film. You have to have narration, or at least you did at that time. But I was able to pursue things that interested me without having the burden of having to go out and raise money <laughs> or find a home. And that right. really was an incredibly you know, freeing, right? freeing in many ways, very freeing. Um, I really, as I said, I made many films and um, I was able, you know, not to spend months, years 
developing and raising money and to really just focus on making films. You know, the other side of the coin is that having just made my first feature theatrical documentary, Far From the Tree, that experience was incredibly liberating after making a lot of films for Frontline because I had no constraints. Yeah. It could be as long as I I wanted it to be. It could be, it could, Mm -hmm. it could, it was all me. And that was really great. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, they're both wonderful in in many ways and very different How did the Frontline movies, that's the stuff you take home with you. That mm-hmm. that gets into your DNA in, in a way. It's not like I made this movie, you know, bye, goodbye and go on to the next one. Because these are just not frothy, you know, no. parfaits. You know? <laughs> no, they're not parfaits. <laughs> I mean, Frontline, for those who don't know, is an investigative public affairs series on PBS. It's been around, I think, 30, 40 Forever, years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, w- wins every award multiple times over. It's journalistically speaking the gold standard. And mm-hmm. so, you know, these are not frothy parfaits. They are really rigorously reported um, serious docs. That said, I I had a slightly different niche there than a lot of the other filmmakers, which actually in part was because I had three children while I was making these films. And that's not an easy thing, you know, no to, to, to juggle. So, Especially if you're also going on location. Right. So I actually had to, and I started actually having children not long after I began directing my own films for Frontline. And mm-hmm. they were w- wonderful. David Fanning, who's the executive producer at the time, was really supportive. There were no other women there who were doing this, but he was very supportive of, of my decision to to do it. Um, that said, you know, I couldn't get on a plane and go to Iraq. You know, I couldn't go and do what some of the other directors were doing. Um, so I tended to choose topics that allowed me I did have to travel, but allowed me to stay domestic, the, right. you know, those kind of things. And I actually ended up making quite a number of films about sort of growing up in this country and about families and about parenting and about issues, sort of cultural essays almost, which is a little bit of a different kind of of thing for Frontline. Mm -hmm. But it's what I I was drawn to and it was also allowed me to to live my life. Um, So I made several films about the digital age, actually, one called Growing Up Online and one Mm -hmm. called Digital Nation, which looked, I mean, this was when the digital world was really just still starting, starting mm-hmm. and looking at the way it was changing the experience of growing up. I made with my husband, who I started actually directing with when we started having kids. He's also a documentary filmmaker. A film called Merchants of Cool, which was about the sort of marketing machine and when it targeted towards teenagers, sort of marketing cool. Um, and then I did more traditionally sort of investigative films like Failure to Protect, which is a look at the child welfare system in Maine, and various other uh, football high, which was about concussions in high school football, basically. So, you know, it was a mix, but um, it definitely dictated the kinds of subjects that I was drawn to. I can't imagine that you don't take that work home with you. You know oh, what yeah. I mean? In your head. And, and I, I, mean, I, I just, wow. I mean, we you're never not making stop. cartoons. We you never know? stop. And our kids, you know, that's what they've grown up with, two parents who are documentary filmmakers and who are always, always in it. You know, mm-hmm. it never it never doesn't end when we come home. It doesn't end on the weekends. Mm-hmm. We're, we're living it and breathing it and doing it all the time mm-hmm. for better and worse, you know. And for I think it's really well, almost more than anything else, it's conditioned who our children are, that, mm-hmm. that we both yeah, our, I will how wonderful work. to have that legacy. Yeah, I mean, you have to ask them. I'm sure they'd roll their eyes, and they do roll their eyes well, sometimes. Of well, what, but yeah. yes, I think they've they've seen how passionate we are about what we do. Where in this process did you and your husband start Arc, Arc. Media, and why? When we had our first child, um, which was in 1998, we decided at that point we were making films separately, but we decided at that point 
mostly for practical reasons. I was actually working on a front line that was set in uh, in Conyers, Georgia, and I had to get on a plane and go to Conyers, Georgia, and we thought, why don't we just do this together and bring the baby? Huh. And that's really how it happened. Uh-huh. And so we did because we really had to kind of move there. Um, it was a it was a film about a syphilis outbreak in a in an affluent suburb of Atlanta, and it, it required a kind of embedding in the community. And so we rented an apartment. We brought our infant son, who learned how to walk down there, and we made this film. We formed a company at that point together. Um, at that point, it wasn't called Arc Media. It was a, had a sort of unfortunate name, which we ended up ch- ch- changing. <laughs> but um, it was just us, and mm-hmm. it was small. We just did probably one or two films at a time. He. My husband did a lot of historical documentaries for American Experience, which is a series on PBS. Right. And I did Frontlines, and then we did Frontlines together. And and then uh, so at that point, it was it was housed in the basement of our Park Slope brownstone, and it was just us and a couple of other people. But over time, it grew, and now we have about sixty employees. We wow, have, we have a big company. Yeah, so wow, we've had a kind of explosive five or ten years. God, I can't imagine what it must be like for you to look back over this. It just happened, and, and it, it's a complicated thing. I mean, most documentary filmmakers actually don't go this route, you right. know, having a large production company with a lot of people and a lot of projects. But you have a lot of projects for a reason. We have a lot of projects for a reason, and I think as we've we've expanded, we now have a third partner, John Maggio, who's a wonderfully talented director. He's been a partner of ours for, I want to say, two decades. It's been a long time. So between the three of us, we can handle a lot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the more you grow, the more you grow. Yep, it's like yep, we yep, bring yep. in people who are really talented, and then we can handle more. Mm-hmm. And the infrastructure grows. And, you know, it has required me to all of us to wear a lot of hats, huh? Yeah. In addition to directing hats, we we are managers. We are, you know, executive. Yep. Executives, actually. You're business people. Yeah, which is weird. Yeah, and that may not be the sexiest part of it's it. It's not yeah. the sexiest yeah. part. <laughs> I understand I, that. I do like having a company, having a culture, having mm-hmm. being able to give people work and nurture people and see them grow. Yeah. And that's great. And also call the shots, which is a great transition to Far From the Tree. Give the genesis of this and what this means to you and for people who are not familiar with the book. Sure. Well, Far From the Tree, it's an adaptation, actually, of a, of a monumental nonfiction book by Andrew Solomon, which was published in 2012 to great acclaim critically and commercially. The book took Andrew 10 years to write, Oy. and it's about 800 pages long. Wow. And the the inquiry is very actually very simple. Andrew is gay and grew up in a family that adored him, um, but really didn't accept How his homosexuality. He's about 54, 55. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so he grew up, you know, in the 70s, early 80s, when it was a little more complicated for people, and, and a lot of people looked at being gay as an illness or something right. you had to fix. And um, very different environment than than now, and he really felt unloved by his parents uh, because of this, and it was a great source of great shame for him. And as an adult, he was really wrestling with how to forgive them, how to come to terms with this whole experience, and he became very interested in in other situations in which children are very different from their parents. Right? It could be anything from you know they're born with. Down syndrome or they're deaf to they committed a terrible crime mm-hmm. or they have schizophrenia or they're prodigies. And he decided he was going to go talk to as many families as he could who who had dealt with a child who was, quote unquote, far different. from the tree mm-hmm. and different, oh, right. mm-hmm. profoundly different. Mm-hmm. Um, and the book is just 
stunning. I mean, people who've read it understand it's almost, it's more than a book. It's almost like a worldview. (laughs) It really takes your assumptions and expectations and sort of turns them upside down because by the end of the book, most people feel like the way that they look at people who are different will never be the same. Um, It's ultimately an incredibly affirming book about love, about the way in which families who have no choice but to be intimate with someone very different than them, right? I mean, you can choose politically not to talk to anybody who doesn't agree with your point of view. Right, right. But in a family, you're sort of slammed up against each other. Mm -hmm. You're stuck. You're stuck. And so what happens? Mm -hmm. And what you find, at least in the families that Andrew talked to, is a kind of extraordinary joy, almost delight in many cases Hmm. with the um, with the challenge, the challenge, and the difference. It's sort of like when you're when love is tested like that, when it's challenged like that, and it comes through. It comes through so so strongly, right? And and the love in these families is just it just makes your heart soar. But and this is not. I don't mean to sound Pollyanna-ish about this. It's not. The book is anything but saccharine. It's mm-hmm. it's the opposite. But you really feel the sort of hard earned joy of loving somebody who's really, really different than you are. I just happened to cross the book review, actually, which was on the cover of the New York Times book review. And I I knew Andrew a little bit. We had been at college together, but we weren't friends. And he was a couple years older than I was. But I knew his name. So Mm -hmm. I read the review. And I just was totally, like, arrested by it. I wasn't even looking. As I said, I, I this was the first film that I ever, like, decided I was going to go out and raise money to make. I mean, everything I have done, luckily, right, in a very – it's been a very great blessing. Yeah, but yep, I've yep. been, you know, commissioned, hired. Sure. Did that scare the shit out of you? You know, it was one of those, like – I just have to make this movie and I'm just going to do whatever I have to do to make it. I didn't think to be scared. I just was like, I'm going to, I got to, I've got to make this film. And I contacted Andrew and uh, he was lovely, but he also informed me that there were about 20 other filmmakers. <laughs> you get on the list. Get on the list. So I did. And, you know, took my time and had dinner with him a couple times and wrote a proposal and he showed him some of my other films. And to his credit, he could not have been more rigorous about this decision. I mean, he really did his homework, did his homework. And he spoke to a lot of people and he thought it through. And ultimately, he told me, you know, he was going to give me the rights to the book. that That took, you know, close to a year, probably by the time that was done. And then I had to go out and raise the money. So when did he give you his blessing? What year was that? I'm terrible with dates. I want to say 2014. Okay. Um, and were you going to do this along with your husband? I was the one who really had responded to it, but we approached him together because mm-hmm. we weren't sure. I mean, we were both juggling a lot of projects. Mm-hmm. and But it became pretty clear um, that I was going to make it. It just, it had spoken to me. Barrack was doing other a bunch of other projects. You know, Barrack and I, we, we don't make films together anymore, but we are deeply involved in each other's work. So mm-hmm. we're each other's kind of harshest critic yep, and yep. most and valued system, critic. Yeah. So it's never really as simple as one or the other, but yes, it was going to be mine. And so then I didn't quite know how to raise money, to be honest, because yeah. I hadn't done it. But I approached a few people, a few places that I thought might be interested in. And it didn't, I was also, it was also pretty fortuitous because the book, you know, had moved a lot of people. And Diane Weirman, who's the head of docs at Participant Media, had read the book and loved it. Uh-huh. And so when we met, I could tell she was just, she was really interested. And, and so Participant got involved pretty early and that really helped because then it was sort of. So that wasn't so super owner for you 
in the raising money part? No, it wasn't super onerous because I wasn't, you know, they came in early enough that I didn't have to go to hundreds and hundreds of places. Mm-hmm. And I they come in, participant comes in for a big chunk of the budget. Mm-hmm. So then it makes it a lot easier to raise the rest of the money. And then it took a couple of years to probably two, three years to actually make the film. Because? First of all, it's an 800-page book. So translating it, right, to a 90-minute documentary, Mm -hmm. that's that's challenging. And we had to cast it, which in this case was really the most decisive part of making the film because... Who from this book you were going to include? Well, we only included one family from the book. We made the decision very early on that we didn't want to use the same stories because... Most of them were kind of resolved. I mean, Andrew had spent 10 years reporting the book, and by now the book had been out for several years. And we wanted families that were going through something in front of the camera. Mm -hmm. So -hmm. that decision was made pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. But then we had to kind of start from scratch. And because we were only, the book has dozens of stories, we were going to have four, maybe five. In a 90-minute documentary, you just can't have that many characters. Right, right, People need to care about the characters. Right. So each one had, was such a big decision, you know, and they were going to be letting us into their lives in such incredibly intimate, intimate ways. Yeah. So for all of these reasons, it just it took a year, you know, a year of just meeting people. And Is that all you again. did in that year? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. For a while I was juggling and then I managed to clear my slate and just do mm-hmm. this. And I would say for about two and a half years, this was all I did, which mm-hmm. was also just a luxury and Really and the film you, takes you all over the states? We have a family in Texas. We have a family in um, Maryland, a family in Long Island, um, family in outside of D.C. You know, it's kind of a, I would say, more East Coast. Mm-hmm. Just because in the end, it didn't matter really where of they were. And not. it was just yeah. easier to follow because it's a verite film. So there's just a tremendous amount of time investment in spending. So you're you moving know, in with these families. Kind of, yeah. Wow. And my producer and co-director, Jamila Efron, did a lot of heavy lifting as well. I mean, she would often go out with a camera without me. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just so many days of shooting. Um, but yes, we sort of followed these families over the course of a couple of years. Wow, I can't imagine what that must be like for you or for them. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> I mean, it's such a pro... I mean, you know, it's it just to be that... And, you know, you get to a point where you're so comfortable with each other that mm-hmm. it's just, you know... You don't. What what I loved about making this film, which is ultimately what I love about making docs in general, but it was really true with this film, is that you know when do you get to be so close to a couple? I mean, Joe and Leah, for example, who are the dwarf. They're a dwarf couple in the film. They're in love. They're married. They're both. They both are little people. And Joe's an academic. Um, Leah's sort of in PR, and they're incredibly smart, funny. You know, just sharp as whips. And I would never have met them or gotten to know them if it weren't for this film. But once I did, and if I had gotten to know them, maybe we would have had dinner a couple times and I would have enjoyed talking to them. But I got to, like, live in their house, you know, and get to know them so well that we didn't even notice each other half the time. You know, it was Mm -hmm. like it was – and that kind of intimacy – with people who, you know, are so different in, in many ways. They're actually not that different than I am, as it turns out, at mm-hmm, all. But they mm-hmm. look they look really right. different. Right, of course. You notice right away the physical difference. That's right. And, and you also make judgments. That's what you realize very mm-hmm. quickly. Um, what I realized, you make all sorts of judgments yeah. that are so unbelievably off. <laughs> yeah, right. And such a sort of disservice, not only to them, but to, to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so making the film was just a great 
chance to kind of re- really re- reset mm-hmm. for me uh, the way that I the way that I interact and look at people who look, sound, act different than me, and I feel like I've got you know lifelong friends in these people. Hmm. Um, what was that process like for you after living with these families and then taking all this footage back home with you? Really hard. <laughs> really hard. I mean, it's a hard, it was a hard film. All films are hard. Multiple character documentaries are hard, and they're hard when you don't have a device that really links people. And in this case, you know, these are people, these are four or five stories. People don't know, they don't know each other. They have nothing in common, actually, other than that they're all different. <laughs> so it was challenging to find the spine, the narrative spine, and a way to kind of weave yeah. stories, a structure. Also, Andrew Solomon, the author of the book, is in the film. I was just going to ask about that. He might have been the catalyst, and you got one family from him, but he was the springboard. Well, also, he's in the book. It's really through his point of view. And so similar to the book, in the film, it's his point of view. Um, So he came with you and met the families? Some. I mean, mostly no. Mostly his story is separate from the others. It kind of weaves throughout. He's not exactly a narrator, but he's sort of like the the perspective. Well, right. Well, his his experience was the catalyst his experience for him and for you. Right. Yeah. And that's how the film begins. Of course. And you sort of return to him sometimes in between stories, mm-hmm. and he gives you some perspective. I mean, one of the great insights of the book is that the line between what we see as illness and what we see as identity is actually very thin. So Give me an example. Homosexuality was, huh. for many years, decades, seen mm. as an illness. illness yeah. Today, it's a proud identity. And Andrew asked this question, you know, how do we know what to cure and what to celebrate? You oh, look wow. at someone who's a little person, yeah. and you might think, oh, poor thing. You know? yeah. yeah. You go to the Little People of America convention, which happens every summer for a week, all over the country, they have. I mean, it happens in a different place each summer, and they they bring together little people from all over the country, sometimes all over the world, for a week together. And it is the most joyous celebration of being little. I mean, you walk out of there, and the, the last thing on your brain is that this is an illness. I mean, these are people. Listen, it can be hard to be little. You can have issues with your spine. There can be health issues, but there is such a sense of identity in this and community and joy in that space. And you realize that it is this this line between illness and identity is really a matter of perspective. And that we as a society make all sorts of judgments about what's when, when something's wrong, it's broken, it needs to be fixed. For sure. And as Leah, uh, who's, as I mentioned, one of one of the characters in the film says, I don't need to be fixed. You know, that I think is a really important perspective that the that, that I know just from people who've seen the film, I think, is the big impact of the film. Do you think, parenthetically, that that uh, reality TV series, Little People, Big World, ha- has had an impact? I have very mixed feelings yeah. about, uh, you know, about that. I mean, it's a really edifying film, but then it's just like, why are you doing this? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think they do, too. I mean, I think in some ways it's actually demystified it a little bit, and people are more used to seeing people who are who are short stature and but it also can be a bit of a caricature yes yes and it tends to focus on things like you know oh everybody's just looking for a date you know and stuff like that i think you know what we tried to do in the film we were actually the the little people of america convention had been open to press for a while and by the time that we approached them they had closed it down because of shows like that mm. and 
but they did allow us to film. We were we had to kind of a, essentially make a presentation to the board to get permission to to film with cameras freely at the convention. But they did decide to make an exception for us. And I think what what you see when you see the film is a very different window right. into that world than you'll see. And on so these they're not sorry shows. they did, huh? I don't think so. <laughs> um, and for example, there's a scene in the film where we film um, what the LPA board meeting, the Little People of America board meeting. And here you have a bunch of you know, maybe 30, I think they have about 25, 30 members of their board and just really smart kind of serious conversation about a whole lot of very serious issues that, you know, again, you just don't associate. A lot of people don't associate with that community, uh-huh. which is, I think, again, our our short-sightedness, yep, but yep. Mm-hmm. nobody's nobody's gone in there. Obviously, making this movie had an incredible impact on you. Yes, transformative. It actually coincided with something else that's happened to me, which is that in the last um, six, seven years, I've been involved in uh, several series about African-American history, which I've senior produced. So I've been sort of the overseeing producer, Mm -hmm. director on these series. Uh, Several of them were with Henry Louis Gates Jr. Um, And then recently I did a series for, uh, I'm sorry, a two-hour special for NBC which was aired in March called Hope and Fury, which was about the media and the civil rights movement with uh, my producing partner, Phil Burleson. And I've really experienced a kind of opening up, I would say, of my my world in many ways because of Far From the Tree and because of, of these kind of excursions into a part of our history that I haven't really mm-hmm. known much about. And so I would say that I've been really, I think, in this next part of my life, I am really drawn to to looking at difference. You know, and it's so funny because I was thinking of this image. For you, it's not just making the donuts. No. <laughs> you know? I mean, how powerful that is for you. This is not a job. No. This is a mission and a passion. And it kind of gives me goosebumps. Well, it's a life, you know. I don't. I yeah, really don't people, put the lines between it. Yeah, but people can be dismissive of life. Well, I think, you know, those of us that have jobs that allow us to, to be curious, I think, you know, get to really sort of break the boundaries between our life and our work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel, Or connect them. Connect them. Yeah. So I, I feel like, you know, my my job is my life. My my work mm-hmm. is my life. And I don't mean that because I, I work so hard. I just mean that I don't take it that way at all. Yeah, it, it's, it's really, part of who you are. It's, you it can't is, separate the two. No. And that's no. what's so great. Can you share with us what might be on the horizon? I'm doing a six-hour limited series on Malcolm X, actually. Ah. Um, particularly the last year of his life. Uh-huh. Um, and for television or it's the for, big It's for streaming. I can't get into a great deal about it, but it's got a kind of true crime aspect ah. to it. Uh-huh. And it looks it's, uh, at his assassination in, in kind of fresh ways. And so it's actually a very different project than I've ever done because of this kind of more true crime detective sort of aspect to it. Um, but it also taps into the, the piece of American history that I've gotten so interested in, which is which is black history, African-American history. And Malcolm is just an incredible, yeah, incredible, larger than larger life, than life yeah. figure. So it's yeah. been great to be like living with him for the last six months or so. So this means that you'll come back. I will definitely come. If you'll have me, <laughs> I, will, I will definitely I, come back. I have you. <laughs> I don't know. I just, like I said, I never tire of meeting and having conversations with women like you. One of the things that I I love meeting younger w- women who want to be filmmakers, and I I see myself, particularly because I had children, which is something that I think a lot of female filmmakers still wrestle with. They're is, nervous about Can I yeah, do this? Yeah. And I just want 
want them all to know how not only possible it is, but how ideal it is in many ways as a career to be a mother. Um, because for, for me, anyway, it has just ex- it's conditioned and expanded the way I make films. And how you look at life. And how I look at yeah. life. And, and I see it as a, as a net plus. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, I This just, is an integral part of who you are. Yeah. But I think more and more women are seeing it as a viable mm-hmm. career. And we're at a moment where I think it's it's good to be female. And luckily, you know, people are giving us some some you know, attention finally. For, we're taking the attention. And we're yeah. taking it, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a golden moment for women to be going into this absolutely amazing what a, profession. What a great note to end on. <laughs> I will never tire of doing this ever. ever. <laughs> well, you see, you feel the same way about your job I feel about mine. Yeah, really, I do. Rachel Drutzen, thank you so much for joining me today and much more continued success. And you heard it here. She's coming back. Thanks so much for having me, Sandy. I really enjoyed it. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.